VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Across the gig economy, we need to be transferring wealth to these workers, transferring protections to these workers, because they are what the fabric of our you know, social infrastructure relies on. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. We are back for the second time this week. Thank you for tuning in again. This is a good one. You'll be glad you're here. So I started pestering Meredith Whitaker about 18 months ago. And this week, she's here. Figuratively speaking, of course, we actually did this podcast bi-coastally. She's based in New York. I am, of course, here in Oakland. And just to give a bit of background, I started peppering her with messages way back when because as the various revolu- revelations and employee descent at Google started picking up pace over the months, um, whether it was over Project Maven, the Pentagon drone contract, or sexual harassment payouts for executives, she was right in the center of it. She was, um, she'd been at Google for many years, and she became one of the lead organizers of the Google walkout, which saw 20,000 people, employees, just leave their desks in unison at Google offices all around the world. So she helped kind of organize that, get that off the ground and, and realize that. She left Google last year after 13 years at the company, after what she claimed was steady, a steady kind of campaign of retaliation from the company. The company obviously denies this. And she is now full-time at AI Now, a research institute where they tackle all the hard questions that are coming up around AI, like how things like bias, sexism, racism seep into AI and the potentially very terrifying results that that could generate. Uh, point is, she's up to tons of interesting stuff. She knows very well how powerful big tech truly is, having been inside the machine for so long. And we finally managed to catch up at a, a really critical time, which is when governments around the world are co-opting Silicon Valley to fight coronavirus. And one, one small warning before we get started, we recorded this late last week right before Apple and Google announced their ambitious and kind of amazing plan to turn every mobile phone on the planet into a COVID tracker. So that happened. And in a sign of the times, people were generally okay with it. So there's a couple points here where we're talking still in the hypothetical about things that would soon transpire. So here is Meredith Whitaker, former Googler and co-founder of AI now. Well, thank you for taking the time. I know we've kind of, this has been a lot of uh, back and forth. 
yes, hello, good morning. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sorry, you're going to, my brain is like quarantine, waterlogged at this point. So, um, no, I understand. Inarticulate responses. There's obviously lots to, to lots of directions we can go here, but I think it would be good just to kind of, for listeners who don't know, just get a sense of a little bit of where you got to where you were both at AI Now and your position at Google and kind of the events of last year, just to kind of set the scene. And then we can kind of go from there, if that makes sense. Sure, absolutely. I had a, a kind of interesting path. I came out of a, I have sort of a degree in the humanities. I ended up at Google because I needed a job. I ended up becoming really interested in kind of the dynamics of tech. You know, what was this? Why was it gaining so much power? What did it actually do? I worked at Google for 13 years, ended up founding a research group that was focused on sort of collaborating outside of the company, looking at sort of big social and political issues where sort of tech and policy intersected. When did you found that? It was sort of like grew out of work I was doing. So I think it was starting in like 2010, probably. I don't know. I would need to like look at my calendar. But um, and then sort of projects accrued. And then we, you know, put a name on it, probably something around like 2013. But But the idea being that this kind of was relatively early in the kind of broader awakening of just the immense power of tech and what it was doing in various different ways to society and politics and the economy and everything else. Yeah, and and at that point I was working on questions of privacy and net neutrality. Like we had, you know, in some cases the problems we were tackling were different. In some cases the names we were giving those problems of, you know, who knows what about whom and what power does that give them over them, you know, were a bit Mm. different. I think tech itself was different. When I started at Google in 2006, I think there were something like 5,000 full-time workers and everyone was complaining that suddenly they didn't know everyone, right? So like (laughs) we have seen kind of just a kind of metastasized over the uh, duration of my tenure there um, as I started, you know, particularly started working on sort of low level problems, like how do you create robust data? How do you integrate data into policymaking practices? How do you kind of make claims based on this data? I started getting, you know, increasingly concerned about the, you know, the integration of AI or machine intelligence or whatever we're talking about into everyday life, right? Because, of course, it's sort of right. drawing on this data as its source of ground truth. And I was, I was engaged in the practice of, like, trying to create data that was meaningful. And it was, it was never not a mess. Right. And we had, you know, Mm. best available tools. We were, you know, we we should have been, if anyone was able to create sort of robust data, it should have been kind of the efforts I was working on. But, um, you know, it turns out that, you know, that is a deeply political contingent process. And, you know, the, the, the details really matter. And so what happened last, was it, I can't remember exactly the dates, the, the walkout, you helped, the, the big Google employee walkout, you helped, uh, you were one of the kind of the lead organizers of that, yes? Yeah, I, I was. Um, I mean, maybe we can sort of move back before then, because sort of yeah. as part of my career, I'd become, you know, what, what I, you know, a, a vocal critic of tech. I had sort of raised questions about the application of artificial intelligence, you know, bias and fairness issues. And I was sort of known inside the company and outside as someone who sort of spoke about these issues and often spoke contrary to the party line of, of, you know, Google's policy shop, right? We did a big piece uh, last year on Google and, you know, how it's been rated 
the number one place to work in America for however many years running, yet especially in the last 18 months, call it. I mean, the dissonance between that image and what appeared to be happening within the ranks was pretty astounding. I mean, if you were kind of in the machine, being very critical and being very public with that criticism, how that was received and how did that change over time? I mean, I think it's interesting because when I was simply a one person alone integrated into a network of sort of scholars and academics outside of the company who were really kind of helping me think about this. But nonetheless, in the company, I was one person and I was making arguments. The arguments were robust, but I was more or less celebrated for that work, right? I was, you know, I was mm. a, I did great on my performance reviews, right? I, I, I was appreciated by my colleagues. I was not perturbed in any of that activity. It was when I started labor organizing that they, turned an eye to that and said, it's not okay. And I think that the lesson there was that dissent without power can actually serve their purpose. It creates a wonderful mm. smokescreen. It looks like, you know, they're into, you know, they're accepting all viewpoints. They're really interested in a robust conversation, right? But at the end of the day, I wasn't in those rooms making the decisions based on those viewpoints, right? I was, right. You, know, you know, you can think of it as kind of a, a token dissenter. Um, you know, that's a lesson I kind of carry with me. And, and it was only when I started to work with my colleagues to kind of build worker power and have the agency to make these decisions that they, they came down on me. And, it, you know, it's ultimately QED, it's about power. <laughs> right. Yeah. When did you start organizing? You know, I had been inspired by the shuttle drivers, by the cafeteria workers, by others in the Valley who had started organizing in like 2015. It didn't get much news, but there were, you know, there were, you know, you know, sophisticated organizing campaigns that resulted in union drives, successful unionization. I think you could have considered me kind of a supporter of that. There were some folks inside Google who had sort of raised issues with management in the past through gathering mass support. For me, the moment was... Um, the disclosure of the Project Maven contract. And this was something that I had sort of learned right. about before it was known widely in the company because I was someone who was sort of fairly public as a, a dissenting voice, someone who cared about these issues. And so I, you know, I ended up being a person people would kind of come to in confidence, being like, I'm really disturbed about this project, right? And Maven was one of those. So it was, I think, kind of fall of 2017, I started to hear about this contract with the Department of Def the U.S. Department of Defense that this contract was going to, in some way, apply ma machine vision to the U.S. drone program. The details were sparse, mm. but you know you could you could match that information with external records around Project Maven, which had not been connected with Google, but you know you had public dossier on or public announcement about what that was. It was really just disturbing to me. And I, you know, there were some folks inside the company that were escalating that sort of, you know, bringing their concerns to management saying, you know, we don't want to work on this. There are technical mm -hmm. and ethical reasons that we don't want to work on this. And I was watching it sort of these parallel tracks, kind of watching it move forward, even as those, you know, folks, some of whom had significant seniority were sort of pushing um, to stop it. So, you know, I, I ended up writing a letter, like a petition, Google should not be in the business of war. And this was helped propel a debate within the company. And then there was just a lot of, a lot of organizing around this, right? Kind of raising, raising questions about the relationship of a company that has, you know, so much power and so much personal information mm. to, you know, the world's most, le most lethal military, raising questions about providing automated technology for 
surveillance and targeting to a program that has been shown repeatedly to violate international human rights law. To begin to ask these questions and begin to ask, you know, ultimately, who should be making these decisions? Why wasn't a decision to automate these you know, deadly systems made in a democratic way? Why is this a contract between you know, a corporation and a secretive military? Why aren't we able to think through the gravity of these decisions? Um, and so that's, that's more or less where I, I went from kind of critic to organizer, I think, if we're going to demarcate a line. On that point, it's really interesting because obviously it's, it's that debate around how how much tech gets involved with the Pentagon, with national defense, with the military is, I mean, it, that debate continues to kind of gain steam actually with, you know, Microsoft and Oracle and even Amazon with its facial recognition technology, et cetera, which we can talk about. I've spoken with the guys at Palantir, uh, who I'm sure you know. They're basically saying if you are a Google and you have the best technology, the best brains in the world to make an active decision to not help the military, that is a kind of an abrogation of your duty as a an American company because the Chinese tech companies or wherever else, you know, c- country X – will be using their best brains to do something similar. In other words, you're putting your country at a grave disadvantage. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that approach, but he, their their whole take on that is, look, this is an irresponsible thing to basically just pull out of these type of this type of work entirely. That's pious nonsense. I, I would <laughs> characterize it. I, you know, like, look at where Palantir gets its revenue from, right? Yep. I, I think... You know, again, this hinges on a notion that, you know, these companies have technology that is the best at everything. But mm. ultimately, if you're building a machine vision model for the drone program, which itself should be contested, right? Like we should have yeah. a choice over, you know, why are we supporting a program that is, you know, killing civilians whose death count is hidden from the public, that has been used for extrajudicial killings of American citizens. Like this is like the fact that we can't get serious with questions like this in a response like that tells us a bit about the kind of gloss they're trying to throw over the issue. Well, I should also say Palantir, obviously, they after Google pulled out of the Maven contract, Palantir now has that contract. Yeah, no, and, and I'm sure they have great justifications. But ultimately, you're not going to build technology that is any better than our intel on the ground, right? You need to train these models on that intel in one way or another. It's, it's humans all the way down. And if what you're doing is effectively automating the status quo, automating, you know, what we know, we are going to be, you know, automating, you know, the killing of civilians. We don't, you know, there is no way around that given the way these these technologies function. And then we get into questions about how far automated are these? Who is responsible for Mm. the killing of, of civilians, right? And this gets... There are organizations and people who have thought long and hard. You know, I would I would point you to, you know, Lucy Suchman and Peter Asaro and others who've really looked at, you know, the the profound issues that automating weaponry raise. But this is not simply like we are, you know, we're leaving our government in the ring with one hand tied behind its back. Like, look at the U.S. military. Look at what these things are used for. Look at the geopolitical context. And then let's get back to defining best, right? What are these technologies right. best at and whose interests are they actually serving? And if we can't answer that honestly with precision and nuance, then we have a real problem. You said something there that I thought was interesting. It's uh, about automating the status quo. And I think that kind of gets to, and correct me if I'm wrong, to a lot of the work you do now at 
AI now, which is around the kind of inherent bias that comes in a lot of AI. And you say AI and the man in the street thinks, you know, super smart computer that magically does stuff. But of course, machine learning algorithms are crafted by humans and based on data that humans provide and generate. So I don't know if you could talk about what kind of the problems with or where you see the, the potential issues around the mass deployment of AI, because it, it is seeping into more and more corners of our life, you know, kind of the, the, the problems that, you know, nestle deep inside some of these things. AI Now is the first university research institute to focus solely on the social implications of AI. So that certainly involves looking at the biases and and inaccuracies that are encoded in these systems because of course they are they're trained on data that are pulled from our social and political lives that data is often incomplete and that data reflects the status quo it reflects our past and our present and those things are we see repeatedly sort of then reflected in the way these technologies operate you know from gender bias to racial bias etc but we also look at the sort of power dynamics of these systems who has the power to deploy them on whom who is sort of benefiting from the development and deployment of large-scale AI, and who is placed in the position of kind of an experimental test subject, whose lives and opportunities are then shaped by automated systems that are, you know, in the case of the U.S., ultimately track back to five or so large corporations um, who have are, are the only ones in the position to, you know, create these large-scale AI systems at scale. And so I think we need to, you know, we really need a power analysis in addition to an analysis of the types of biases that are encoded in these in these systems. Can you give an example? For me, the algorithms like used, you know, by the justices around sentencing, for example. Yeah. Let's go there. In the last couple of weeks, I don't know, time doesn't exist anymore, but um, <laughs> I think it was about two weeks ago, uh, Attorney General Barr released a memo to the Bureau of Prisons recommending that some prisoners be released released for COVID release, right? Because these prisons are just petri dishes. You know, it's, it, we're looking at mass death if people aren't decarcerated. It's, it's extremely serious and extremely urgent. And as part of that memo, Barr mandated, suggested the use of the pattern risk assessment tool, which is a risk assessment algorithm that kind of determines somebody's likelihood of reoffense. It has all kinds of problems. Is that a company's algorithm, or is that something that was been co- contributed to by various companies or the the government? Or I mean, who owns that algorithm? I believe it is a, a government created algorithm. Gotcha. Um, but it gotcha. has been sort of it has been examined by researchers and you know academics and and advocates outside and found yeah. you know it, it relies on faulty data. And I won't get too far into the weeds on what that is, but ultimately. In a survey that was done, you know, white men were over four times more likely to be labeled as sort of a low risk than black men. And so when we're using this algorithm, which mm. um, you know, determines if someone is going to be a risk when they're released for COVID, which again is an inappropriate context for the use of this algorithm. It's making a life or death choice and an inappropriate social context, right? Crime is at an all-time low during COVID. So we're not looking at sort of a state of reoffenses happening right now. Um, but this, the, nonetheless, the, the memo recommended the use of this algorithm to prioritize release. And so only people with a minimum risk score, according to this algorithm, which was not created for this purpose, would be right. considered for release. 
um, which, you know, it shows you this sort of, you know, once these tools get implemented, um, they sort of take on a life of their own, right? The, the mm. COVID release context was never imagined, right? You know, whether someone is a risk during a pandemic was never considered. But, you know, right. now we see, you know, this being used by those in power to ultimately make life or death decisions about people who are in extraordinarily vulnerable circumstances. And I want to get back to because there's lots to kind of mine there. But I want to just get back to to your experience at Google. So to kind of bring us up to present day. So the Project Maven, that was where you kind of, uh, as you say, kind of perhaps moved from a uh, dissenting voice to a dissenting voice was also organizing labor, so to speak. How did the Google walkout come about? And then what happened after that? How did you end up leaving? Yeah. So, I mean, the Google walkout for me was really a continuum of that organizing, kind of looking at whose lives and well-being are prioritized both within the company and outside the company. And, you know, whether it be poor people in the Middle East who are the victims of this drone bombing or the contract workers at Google who are not afforded sort of, you know, respect and dignity or women and people of color who speak up at, about abuse, there was sort of a, there was a logic there that was really troubling as I began to hear these stories and as our organizing kind of took hold and people began to feel safer talking about their experiences at work and what was troubling them both about the decisions the company were, were making about the outside world and the decisions the company were making in terms of the health, safety, and well-being of their workers. And so there was, there was a lot of work between those, but the walkout was, you know, it was catalyzed by reporting that Andy Rubin, who was a, had credible claims mm, of sexual right. assault made against him, that, you know, the, the Whisper Network within Google knew he was a creep and knew that you stayed away from him because he was also an asshole. That was no secret. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I ask um, almost anyone. If, if folks didn't know that, I would be surprised. But, you know, it was, it was news that even in the face of these credible claims, that Google had given him what we called a sort of sexual assault bonus, $90 million. And to leave. To leave, kind of an yeah. exit package of some kind. And I think that, you know, that in combination with an extraordinarily like flip and dismissive reaction by executives really catalyzed a lot of folks at Google who, you know, may have been on the fence, may have been saying like, well, not unclear how bad the problem is. What kind of problem is this? Right. And I think there was suddenly no question that there was a real, you know, there was some rot at the core. There was a real problem at the company. The question mm. then became like, what do we do about it? Right. And I think the, the walkout, my dear friend, Claire Stapleton, like put on a mailing, the, the mom's mailing list at Google, like how about a walkout? And it just gathered steam from there. And because mm. there had been this sort of groundwork laid by some of the earlier organizing and some of the conversations that, that we've been having in that context, it helped kind of take off. But this was, you know, this was sort of a rupture that really reflected, you know, the, you know, longstanding issues at the company. And then, you know, suddenly they were made public in this very, you know, visceral display of, you know, 20,000 people pouring out on the streets around the world. And so what happened after that? How they, not to kind of preempt they, you, but yeah. things kind of went yeah, sideways they, pretty they quickly. They retaliated against us. I mean, it was very classic. I was suspicious enough that I had already begun like taking notes, every interaction with my manager, with sort of executives, um, and sort of beginning to create a record of those interactions, which anyone who's organizing should just do as hygiene. Mm. Um, so you just have contemporaneous notes or ex have, you know, 
strong evidentiary weight, and it will also help you sort of trace back patterns of behavior. It was right after that that I got the first cues that like, hey, stuff might get a little weird for you. At the same time that I am running AI Now at NYU, that, you know, we are helping kind of, we're one of the organizations that are helping define a lot of the work around these issues. But it's, it's very difficult for Google to say, like, you're not doing important work. And so, you know, over the, it's not a terribly interesting story because, again, this is like, this is classic union busting, right? It just happens to be happening at a tech company, not a steel mill, right? But they, you know, they, the way, you know, and, and union busting, it's like kind of how do you hurt the organizers and chill organizing? That's, you know, that's the, mm. the premise. Over the course of a long time, they sort of told me that my work was no longer, I heard there was some corporate term they used, but basically no longer a priority for the company, irrespective of the fact that they had been like harping on AI ethics and bias issues for a long time. And I'd been really doing that for a long time. And they tried to set up that AI ethics board, which lasted about three days. That was sort of insult to injury. They wanted like, they're yeah. like, we'll, we'll placate the critics at the same time that we're kowtowing to the extreme far right in the US. And that obviously, they didn't hire us because we're not good at analyzing situations like that. Um, right. <laughs> it was a really long, tiring year. And at some point, it just became clear that I couldn't, I had responsibilities to the staff at AI now. I had responsibilities to that work. I was driven by that work. And staying at Google and just being in a, you know, a continuous fight is a war of attrition. And they, you know, they can refill their troops every, you know, every week if they want. And there's only one mm. me. <laughs> so you quit? Uh, yeah. It sounds like it was just a steady drip drip of effective kind of demotions or was there a final straw that broke the camel's back? It was death by paper cuts, but there was there was a meeting where I was told, you know, I had the choice of abandoning my AI ethics work and taking what was essentially an administrative role that would have been in all ways kind of a, a significant emotion or I could, you know, or then there was just ellipses who knew what I could do. But it, it, in that meeting, I mean, I was, I was attuned to it. So I was like, I like stopped the meeting. I said, this is retaliation. I don't want to be meeting with anyone without my lawyer. And then when you get lawyers involved, things just sort of like grind yeah. on. And so now you're, you're running AI now via NYU. Obviously, we're in, in an extraordinary moment with the coronavirus. We're actually looking this week at a piece around what, you know, how much the government governments around the world can uh, can or should or should not co-opt big tech into helping solve this crisis. You know, Google knows everything about us, uh, you know, whether it's through Google Maps or Gmail or what have you. And tracing people to kind of track the pandemic and keep it under control is an important part of exiting lockdown, or that appears to be the case. And so there's an obvious window here for the likes of Facebook and Google. The worry is that this is a slippery slope and that if, you know, the big tech, call it, and government really get into bed together and, you know, are swapping location data of citizens, et cetera, it, it can get pretty uncomfortable pretty quickly, especially when the crisis passes and, you know, what do you do now? Is this something you guys have been thinking about? Yeah, I mean, it's impossible not to think about it, right? You know, I think kind of backing up there, I think the commitment of particularly our federal government to public health needs to be called into question. You know, the premise of all of these, you know, this sort of 
AI-based contact tracing, you know, using mm. cell location data to, you know, figure out traffic patterns. Like, there are hypothetical scenarios in which that would be very useful. And we have seen in, in South Korea and other places where that data has been used as part of a robust public health response to help right. mitigate the spread of the virus. But I think we need to look at the fundamentals. And again, this is part of sort of, you know, I think any time you, you propose adding one of these sort of technological solutions to one or another context, you really have to understand the context. And the context here is that we, our public health response has been it is atrocious, like, like yeah. stunningly bad. It is shown, you know, the cracks in the system are caverns. It's really hard to think of how they could have done it worse. You know, the mm. federal government has just ended funding for state level testing. So if you're doing contact tracing and you don't have testing, it's very unclear what you're actually doing. We have deep racial inequalities and, you know, sort of medical racism that is sort of threading through all of this. In New York, 75% of all essential workers, these are the people who are still going out, still sort of risking their lives in contact with the public. Most of them, 75% of them are black people or people of color. And they're not being protected. They're not being able to follow CDC guidelines. You see, you know, 75%. Right. Yeah. In in New York, it's killing COVID deaths. COVID is killing 50% more black people and people of color than white people. You see already, right? Like who are the populations Mm. who are being impacted by this? And they're impacted by it by like lack of basic protection. They don't have paid sick leave, right? They don't have access medical care because we live in yeah. a sort of you know a world with a medical industry not sort of a healthcare system um yeah. you know you're looking at covid treatment costing upward of thirty thousand dollars as people are being laid off and being sort of you know stripped of their employer provided health care because it's some somewhere along the road we thought that was a good coupling to make what we want to do is address the public health crisis i think we start with those things right we start with paid time off for all workers we start with you know let's cancel rent right, and have federal subsidies that are helping workers make ends meet. Let's make sure free healthcare is available to everyone. Let's make sure free access to testing is widely available. And let's, you know, make sure that these sort of racial inequities that are are showing so clearly through this pandemic are addressed, right? And then we can talk about what type of tech might help. But if we're talking about contact tracing, and we're literally reducing testing in the middle of a pandemic, I think we're, you know, we're talking about a fantasy world. What are you tracing if not, you know, contact with people who tested positive and we don't have those infrastructures in place? But it does feel like something is coming. Some kind of public-private partnership of some description, some kind of app. Taking all the points you just made, which are all completely valid, the testing thing for me is a, I don't understand. I just, I don't get it. I don't get why why it's not happening. I don't get why it's so hard. But, and also in the UK, I know that the government is talking with, I believe with Google in particular, around creating their own app, which would be a kind of a government app, kind of riding on Google kind of infrastructure and and data. Again, it would be voluntary, but a kind of a, as they call it in the UK, you're kind of riding a blitz spirit. We're all in this together. Everybody should sign up for this because it's going to be good for all of us. I agree. I, I think, you know, you're seeing sort of a, in some ways, opportunistic push to sort of, you know, create these, quote unquote, public private partnerships. Google has already offered sort of very high level kind of yeah. a, you know, movement data on folks. How and for whom that's useful is not clear to me. Again, like 
I'm not a public health expert. I have no you know, credentials in this. So I, you know, I can, I can look at the tech and then I can sort of ask these questions and I haven't heard an answer yeah. to that. There's Foursquare is talking with the U.S. government. You have, you know, Palantir partnering with the NHS in the U.K. So there's, this is happening. And I think we, you know, again, I think we need to push back and we need to look at sort of the fundamentals. You know, there, there's a really disturbing trend in the U.S. where we're seeing kind of police being used to enforce quarantine or lockdown. Then when you look at, again, the racial disparity, who are the people who have to go out? Who are the people who are deemed essential workers? Who are the people who don't, you know, you know, unhoused people or people who don't have access to private space? You see, again, the way that is likely to work out and, you know, who is going to be harmed by that. I think it's imperative that we sort of push back on these things and don't, you know, I don't want to say reject, you know, public health data collection efforts out of hand, but I think really demand a very strong and contextual justification for what good is this going to do? How is it going to be overseen? You know, what is the end date that's going to be imperative? Um, and what is the, the broader public health, health infrastructure within which this is fitting? Because if we're just tracking people without testing them, we are using this as a smokescreen for a, you know, increasing the reach of the surveillance state and the the embeddedness, you know, the sort of the interlinking between, you know, the U.S. government and the tech companies, which are both things I think we need to reject. And just kind of circling back to one of the points we talked about earlier is the kind of the the kind of underlying concern here is that AI, because it is, you know, it's kind of a black box and people often think of it as kind of almost magic, but it's actually, it's a human construct based on human generated data is a concern basically that these type of tools can actually just reinforce the inequalities that are already unfolding every day. And especially now in this, with this pandemic, you know, right before our eyes. That is a significant concern. I think reinforce and sort of naturalize them because they, you then have automation bias where people are much more likely to believe the results of a smart computational system than they might be to believe the judgment of a fellow human. That's a serious issue. I think, again, if you're looking at, you know, where are they getting the data, if we're not doing testing, or if only celebrities are able to get tests, you're already looking at sort of a condition where that data is skewed. And if you're not using it extremely carefully, in say, you know, building your models of what a, you know, of a COVID patient or what have you, you're already kind of embedding biases there. So again, this gets back to needing to really understand these sort of structural fundamentals of, you know, how is that data created? Who's creating it? Who gets to use it on whom? Before you embark on sort of spinning up, you know, a, a fancy app that, you know, hasn't answered those questions. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's, it's funny, every, you know, doing a podcast without just kind of focusing on the pandemic ravaging the world, it seems kind of ridiculous. But I don't know if there's any other things that we should be thinking about, especially in terms of AI and as it is deployed more and more, you know, everything from maps to, uh, you know, email completion to sentencing algorithms to hiring algorithms. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe we could talk about some, like, systems we don't often talk about as AI systems, but the sort of, like, worker control and management systems that gig companies Mm. rely on, which, you know, use big data and analytics to, you know, adjust wages or, you know, know, tell an Uber driver where their next trip might be, et cetera. Um, And I think, you know, we are seeing... I mean, I, I, I think, one, we're seeing that these are, you know, fundamentally kind of labor arbitrage systems um, and that, you know, in, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm going to relate this back to AI, but I think it's really, you know, it's fundamental that we look at sort of who has been sort of deemed an essential worker and who is left out of kind of, mm. you know, care and benefits and, you know, gig workers and warehouse workers and, you know, you know, content moderators and others who are kind of paid the least have been shown through this pandemic to be absolutely essential and yet not be, you know, receiving protections and benefits and, and be, you know, there's been a spate of protests across Amazon warehouses, which is seeing, you know, a massive increase in demand at the same time that, you know, it's workers aren't being told of active COVID cases in the warehouse where they're not providing sanitary equipment, where they're not providing, you know, just you know, sick pay and compensation for quarantine, right? And this is, you know, this is happening. I, you know, I and I, I think, you know, again, we really have to think about like who are these, you know, who are these tech companies serving? Who are they sort of, you know, mm. and how, you know, what types of structures do we need to build to make sure these essential workers are protected and compensated? You know, after Amazon received a lot of kind of pushback and criticism, you know, there was a, a, a whistleblower sort of leaked meeting minutes that showed that they had sort of plotted yeah. like defame one of their organizers, um, a black man as, you know, not smart and articulate, which is, I don't even want to yeah. get into how gross that is. But, you know, it, it, their solution that they sort of announced in the press, or one of them was that they would, you know, use machine learning powered software to monitor footages from warehouse cameras to detect based on whatever model whether workers were too close to each other, right? So instead of, Mm. you know, reconfiguring the warehouse, reducing demand, you know, making sure that workers were actually cared for as humans, they put, you know, that they're implementing machine learning based surveillance to, you know, very likely kind of penalize workers who, you know, might accidentally have to step near each other as part of their, you know, extremely backbreaking job. Yeah, I mean, I guess kind of stepping back it does i mean if if anything this uh, the pandemic has just exposed kind of the class and economic fault lines in kind of populations around the world and it's basically poor people are the ones that have to keep working regardless i guess the danger is is that some of these systems can almost supercharge 
the the dangers inherent in that in that dichotomy between somebody like me who I can stay inside my house and work from home and do everything on Zoom and somebody who's in a warehouse or driving around picking up other people's groceries uh, and dropping them off. Yeah. I think we've been shown just who the essential workers are and, you know, been given a mandate that these workers really need to be compensated. Uber drivers are not contractors, sort of as Vina Duval, who is, who's worked on these issues for a long time, said, like, you know, they justify exploitation based on the language of sort of entrepreneurship. But we're mm-hmm. looking at, you know, just a, a system that is calibrated to exploit workers you know, that Uber needs to be treating their drivers as employees, needs to be giving them the sort of benefits and protections that come with that. Across the gig economy, we need to be transferring wealth to these workers, transferring protections to these workers, because they are what the fabric of our, you know, social infrastructure relies on. That's the tech solution I'd like to see, you know, massive transfer of sort of money and wealth to these frontline workers, to these sort of, you know, systems of care not the deployment of a data set or a new app. Do you have any sense of how that might actually happen? Because when you talk transfer of wealth, that gives um, any capitalist the kind of the heebie-jeebies. Well, I'm sure it does, but um, let's just say like, (laughs) you know, and I'm sure this whole system is, uh, should be giving everyone else the heebie-jeebies as well. But I, I think ultimately a transfer of wealth can be, you know, increase their pay, right? Should they yeah. be getting, you know, stable salaries? They should be having, you know, we are only as safe as our least protected person in a sort of, you know, public health emergency. So we need, you know, free access to medical care. This isn't, you know, I'm, I'm not talking about some sort of like, you know, violent mass appropriation. I'm talking about, you know, kind of let's, let's make sure that these Every worker can earn a living wage. That one job is enough. These these aren't radical ideas. I think you know if you're if, if capitalism relies on you know only one person owning everything and everyone else being sort of a serf, then that's not a system that is healthy for anyone, right? And I would say even that one person sounds like awful, isolating, and stressful. Um, but you know we need <laughs> we need a way to ensure sort of you know. We need to, a way to ensure that, you know, people are able to live sort of robust, healthy, dignified lives. And part of that yeah. is just yeah. making sure they have the things they need, shelter, food, leisure. <sighs> it's all very depressing right now. It's deeply depressing. I'm, I am not the right person to invite to a party if you don't <laughs> want to be depressed. Um, but here we are. <laughs> uh, there, you know, when these contradictions are so clearly exposed, there is a moment for action and opportunity. So that's that's the light, mm. right? Is that we yeah. can, you know, it, there is no way similar to the way the sort of Andy Rubin revelation catalyzed, you know, so much else. I think because it was just no longer possible to justify the, those actions and justify the system working as intended. I think we're at a similar place right now, and you know, right. hopefully we can move instead of you know surveillance fascism we can move toward changing the system so that everyone can can live more easily and and more healthily and that is all the time we have i want to thank meredith for taking the time to talk i hope you guys enjoyed the conversation obviously a lot to think about especially as we said as governments and the big tech companies get kind of get closer than ever um, as we fight this pandemic opens up a lot of really interesting questions that are as yet kind of unresolved so 
I will be writing about, well, I'll be writing about a whole bunch of stuff in the paper. So do go to thetimes.co.uk to see what we're up to. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe. The advertisers have disappeared. So that subscription revenue is what's keeping us afloat. It's what's helping us write these stories and do these podcasts and hopefully keeping you entertained and informed. That is it for this weekend. Stay safe and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.